All right, so I've worn the announcement hat, then the communion hat. Now it's time for the preaching hat. And today we're in the third and final part of our series, The Unsettling Solution for Just About Everything. And I wanted to start off this morning by making everybody in the room uncomfortable. Yeah. And I'm going to do that by starting with a riddle. What do you call a group of lying, cheating, greedy, covetous, lustful, tax evading, fearful, jealous, judgmental, angry people who eat too much, spend too much, drink too much, medicate too much, worry too much, and smoke too much? but who gather together because they believe that Jesus is the light of the world and they need more light. What do you call it? You call it the church. Did I get everybody in there? Did everybody feel that just a little bit? (laughs) If you came here today and you thought you were going to be surrounded by a bunch of holy people, I hope that I just burst your bubble. In fact, if you're here with us today and you previously felt like you never really fit in with church people, maybe and hopefully you started rethinking that position when you heard my list. That as we talk about, and we do talk about it quite a bit around here, contrary to the way that you may have been taught, the church is not a place and it's not an institution. The church is an ecclesia. The church is a community of people who are set apart, who stand apart from the rest of the world. The church is a community of people who stand for something, and they stand out of the ordinary. The church is a gathering of diverse, imperfect people. That's why no matter where you are, no matter who you are, that's why you found yourself included in my opening list. The church is a gathering of imperfect people with different views, And different experiences who really don't agree all the time and certainly don't have to agree on everything. In fact, to be a part of the church, to be a part of an ecclesia, which is Greek for called out community, we only need to agree upon two things. First, we need to agree that God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to forgive us and pay for our sins so we can commit our our lives to God and be connected to him forever. And second, we need to believe that God sent his son into the world. And when he did that, he extended something to us that we're now responsible to extend to other people, including other people outside of our community. And that thing is what we've been talking about in this series. That thing is grace. Grace is vital for every relationship. Grace is to a relationship as oil is to an engine. An engine is made up of a lot of moving parts that interact with each other, that mesh with each other, that rub against each other. They do all that to make the engine run, but oil is vital to keep that operation of the engine smooth. Oil allows the parts to work together without overheating and without the friction between the parts ruining the whole thing. That's what grace does in an ecclesia. It makes it so that people who are different from each other can be together without destroying each other. 
Grace allows people who aren't like each other to like each other. Grace makes it so people with profound differences can work together to accomplish things that none of them could do on their own. And the reason we're talking about this at Christmas is that your Heavenly Father initiated it and modeled it. Grace is so central to Christmas that it's featured in one of the most well-known Christmas carols. In fact, it's one of them that we sang this morning. In, in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which was a song written by one of the pioneers of Methodism, a guy by the name of Charles Wesley, and it was adopted by another Methodist, a prominent Methodist evangelist by the name of George Whitfield. And in that song, one of the most famous lyrics tells us how God and sinner are reconciled. Well, at Christmas, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate the reconciliation of God and sinner. And we understand that that reconciliation could not happen without grace. Because it's interesting. You can be right about God without grace, but you can't be reconciled to God without grace. You see, Jesus did not come into the world to be right as much as he came into the world to make things right. And within the context of relationships, grace becomes amazing when it's extended to other people. Now, as we saw last week, grace is invisible. And because it's invisible, it needs to be experienced. It needs to be experienced in order to be recognized and in order to be understood. And grace is only experienced within the context of relationships. When God sent his son into the world, that's exactly how he extended grace to us. God's grace that he extended to us is amazing. And we are most amazing when we extend that grace to other people. In fact, we are most like our Father in heaven when we extend that grace to other people. God's grace is, is amazing, and it's an invitation for us to be amazing for God. God's extending grace to us gives us the opportunity to extend grace to other people. But here's the issue. Extending grace to other people is not always easy. It's not always something that we want to do. And more specifically, extending grace to certain people is not easy for some of us. And if I can dig in just a little bit deeper, extending grace to certain kinds of people Certain groups of people, certain people who express or embrace certain behaviors, or certain people that remind us of someone who hurt us in the past is especially challenging. And Jesus told us why that is. In one of the most unsettling questions asked by anyone at any time, anywhere, Jesus explained why it's so unsettling, why it's so difficult to extend grace. Well, it's because we often can't see how much we need grace ourselves. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Why do you look specifically? Why do you give all this attention to? Why do you get so worked up about the speck, that little thing that somebody else does wrong, in your brother's eye, 
Yet you don't pay any attention to your own issues or your own problems or your own habits or your own attitudes. Why do you not pay any attention to the plank that's in your own eye? Now, when somebody hears that, when people hear that, someone will invariably say, well, I'll tell you why. Because what they have in their eye is not just a speck. She's a Democrat. He's a Republican. They watch MSNBC. They have on Fox News all day long. I mean, seriously. But for some, it hits even closer to home. For some, it's much more personal. Maybe, and I don't know what your, all your backgrounds are, but maybe one of your parents wasn't there for you when you were growing up. Maybe someone in your family hurt you. Maybe a close friend betrayed you. Maybe a spouse, an ex-spouse, maybe an employer treated you badly. Whatever it is for you, some things seem more like more than a speck. And when that's the case, and it's understandable, we feel well justified in our one-way approach to grace. I want grace, but I'm not showing grace. Others think to themselves, and even if they don't realize they're thinking to themselves, they're doing it. The reason I pay attention to the speck of sawdust in my brother's eye and I don't see the plank in my own eye is simple. I don't have one. I am enlightened. I know the way the world really works. Unlike everybody else on the planet, I haven't been detrimentally influenced by my world or my circumstances. I have always risen above it. I alone have the unique ability to see through all of that. I am just that much more on the ball than everybody around me. So obviously Jesus wasn't talking to me. Hmm. This applies to more of us than we are wanting to admit, doesn't it? Well, Jesus didn't stop there. He kept going in verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, how can you say to your brother-in-law, or your sister, or your sister-in-law, or your neighbor, or that person at work, or your boss, or that person who used to be your friend, how can you say to that specific person, let me help you see how the world really is? Let me tell you how the world really works. Let me tell you what you should do. Let me tell you what you should have done. Let me tell you what you shouldn't have done. You see what Jesus is telling us? He's saying to us, every time you've been critical of another person, every time you've tried to leverage your flawed, inaccurate perception of yourself to critique or criticize or castigate the actions or behaviors of another, every time you do that, you're out of line. It's not your job. It's not your place to call out the actions or behaviors of another when you're just as bad as they are, if not worse. If you're in the business of monitoring the actions and behaviors of another while at the same time ignoring the deficiencies in your own behavior, Jesus actually has a label for you. And you're not going to like it. Here's what Jesus calls you. He says, you hypocrite. Isn't this interesting? Isn't that what the culture has been saying about us Christians for a very long time? Is it possible that the culture knows more 
about what Jesus said to us than we do? Hmm, let's keep reading. Jesus said, you hypocrites, you sinners, you're all falling short of the glory of God. You all live in glass houses. Nobody should be throwing rocks. And yet, even though we do that, God still extended and God continues to extend his grace to us. You want to know why? You want to know why God is able to extend grace to you in spite of you? You want to know why God is willing to give you what you don't deserve, even though he knows better than anybody what you do deserve? Do you want to know why God, who doesn't overlook sin, chooses to forgive your sin and treat you as if you'd never sinned? Do you want to know why God decided to send his son into the world to pay for your sins so that you'd be reconciled through grace to him? Well, it's because God sees you for exactly who you are, and God takes all of that into consideration. God knows what you've been through, and God knows how it's impacted you. And then having taken all of that into consideration, and having considered what you did with it, and what you didn't do with it, God decided to extend grace to you anyway. Looking back on the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, remember, he came along after the crucifixion and resurrection. Paul understood himself to be the biggest hypocrite of all. If you'll remember, in a letter to his protege, Timothy, Paul identified himself as the worst sinner in the world. Remember, he wrote this in 1 Timothy 1. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul said, of whom I am the worst. In the King James Version, he calls himself the chief of all sinners. I love that phrasing. I am their chief. The Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, he was a religious expert. He knew the law as well as anyone else in the first century. He wrote this about himself, and he wrote it about his first century believers. And then he said this in Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? Well, check this out. God didn't merely just say it. God didn't merely just have somebody write it down so we could read a book one day. God demonstrated his own love for us. Who's the us he's talking about? Hang on, we're going to talk about that in a second. While we were still sinning. Now, for Paul, this was very personal. And we can see just how personal it was for Paul when we zoom in and take a look at how it was written. So remember, the New Testament is written in Greek. And when you zoom in and look at the Greek verb tense for the word... While we were still sinners, Paul used the present active tense. We're still doing it. We're still sinning. So from the verb tense, we can understand how Paul recognized that while he and the others were still in the process of sinning, while he and the others were still actively sinning in their own lives, while Paul was traveling around Judea persecuting the followers of Jesus, at that very same moment, unbeknownst to Paul, 
down in Jerusalem, Jesus was dying for their sins. While Paul was committing the sins, Jesus was busy dying for them. While Paul was still sinning, Jesus was nailed to the cross for the very same sins that Paul was in the process of committing. Now, that's an important notion for us to understand. That notion for us is critical to understand, but for Paul, that notion was mind-blowing. There's no way we can hope to understand what it was like for Paul. When Paul wrote this, he wrote it for himself to himself. Think about it. If Paul had written this just for us, specifically, he would have written it in a future tense. He would have said something like, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, knowing ahead of time the sins we all would commit, the sins we all would confess, the sins we all would repeat and confess again, knowing all of that, Christ died for us anyway. But before he could say that, Paul first had to address the sin in himself. He had to address the sin in himself before he could apply it to others. I hope that's sounding familiar. But having done that, then he intended it for us. Because that's how grace works. In granting us grace, God was able to take our whole story into account. And then give us what we deserved least. But what we needed the most. And that's also what God wants us to do for others. So to sum up, Jesus was saying, I don't want you to just feel bad about yourself and your own sinfulness. I don't want you to just go around apologizing to everyone and then making empty promises to them that you're going to try to be better, you're going to try to be nicer, you're going to try to act kinder, only to end up frustrated when others still harm you or others still hurt you as they invariably will. He was saying, I want you to do something very specific. And here's where I want you to begin. Jesus said, first, first, before you try to figure out how you're going to work hard to extend grace to someone else, you need to first address the plank in your own eye. Only then will you be able to see clearly enough to know how to extend grace to the people that need what they don't deserve that I've called you to extend to them. So first, you need to take a close, critical look at yourself and identify what your own planks are because those planks are likely a factor in the reason that you have such a difficult time extending grace to someone else. In other words, your planks might be showing you something about yourself that bothers you and other people. Planks stand in the way of grace. And guess what? You've got planks. We all do. And Jesus was saying, only when you're able to see a person the way that I see a person will you be able to do the unsettling thing. Only when you're able to see a person the way that I see a person will you be able to do the amazing thing. Only when you're able to see a person the way that I see a person will you be able to extend that person grace as God has extended grace to us. When we're able to see others the way that God sees them, we'll have the opportunity to get their attention. When we see other people the way that God sees them, we'll have the opportunity to shake up their world. And we'll have the opportunity to unsettle all their conclusions that they've come to about followers of Jesus that they've met in the past. And we can do that by doing something amazing for them. Something that they would never even think about first doing for you or for me. 
because they're not expecting us to do it for them. But only when we're able to see others the way that God sees them will we be able to extend grace to them. First, you need to look inward. First, you need to examine what's in your own heart. First, you need to, Jesus continued, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. First, you've got to remove that plank from your own eye before you try to extend grace. If you just try to be nicer or more kind or more patient without first dealing with your own planks, it just won't work. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then, only after you do that, will you see clearly. Only after you do that will you know. Only after you do that will you be able to discern what you can do for them, what God, through Christ, has done for you. Now, here's the wild part, and this applies 10 out of 10 times, every time. And I have to admit, it's only recently that I figured this out for myself. And I have to tell you that when I get up here and I tell you these things, I'm not speaking from Sinai. I'm not casting, oh, here you go, the wisdom of the world. I'm telling you, oh my gosh, I just figured this out, guys, you need to hear it. That's what I have to tell you. The more aware I've become of the work God still has to do in me, the more time I spend with God, the more time I spend reading the Bible, the more time I spend understanding who Jesus is and how he's called me, the more time I spend trying to figure out what planks I have in my own eye, the more time I do that, the less concerned I am about what God has yet to do in you. The more aware I am of what God is yet to do in me, the less concerned I am about the less bothered I am with, the less irritated I am with, the less offended I am by what God has yet to do in you. And my heightened state of awareness about myself, coupled with my lack of focus on you, allows me to more freely extend what? Grace. At Christmas time, grace came to earth. At Christmas Grace came to earth to dwell with us in spite of us. And this Christmas, you're going to have an opportunity to show grace to someone else in spite of them. But it won't work, and you'll find no joy in it unless you first remove the plank from your own eye. Now, this is a lesson that we need to internalize at Christmas and all year long. God was more brokenhearted over our sin than he was put off by our sin. God was more brokenhearted over our sin than he was offended by our sin. God was so brokenhearted over our sin that he sent his son into the world to pay for our sins so that God and sinner could be reconciled. At Christmas, God drew near through God the Son, Jesus, even though mankind was by choice far away. At Christmas, God didn't take sides. He sent Jesus to come alongside. And that's precisely what we find throughout the Gospels. Now, with that said, there was one exception. There was a group of people that Jesus did not come alongside of. In fact, there was a group of people that Jesus had a great deal of conflict with. And perhaps surprisingly, they weren't the type of sinners that we typically think of when we think of sinners. You see, 
The people that Jesus had the most problem with were the people who represented graceless religion. Religious people whose planks made it impossible for them to see people the way God saw people. People who had so misunderstood God's law that they didn't think they were in need of grace. People who had so twisted and manipulated the love of God that they didn't feel like they needed the grace of God. See, Jesus had no patience with those people. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be one of those people. And I don't think you want to be one of those people either. And if you're not a church person, if you're not a person who follows Jesus, that may be because you've run into too many of those people, too many religious people who embraced a graceless religion as well. Because the truth is, when grace is up front and out front, there is just something that is irresistible about it. And there's also something that's irresistible about the people who exhibit that kind of grace. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that your favorite person in the world or your favorite people in the world are people who wear their grace up front and display their grace out front. Now, as we talked about at the beginning of this series, John told us that Jesus was full of both grace and truth. And so let me ask you, what are you full of? Let me put it another way. When the world shakes you up, or the world knocks you down, when you bump into another person who sins just like you sin, but in a different way, when you bump into a person who gets on your nerves, when that happens and shakes you up, what spills out? Well, the way you know the answer to the question, what you're full of, is this way. If I fill a glass with bitter water and I shake it or spill it, what spills out? Bitterness, right? But if I have a glass filled with sweet water and I bump it or shake it, what spills out? Sweetness. Makes sense, right? So if I'm filled with grace and you're filled with grace... What do you think is going to come out when we get bumped, when we get shaken? Grace. Grace spills out. Now, will that work for our community? Will that work for our ecclesia? Of course it will. If we're all focused on grace, if we're all motivated to incorporate grace into our lives at all levels, and we get bumped, what's going to be the result? Grace. Grace is going to spill out. And when that happens, guess what happens next? Eventually, when people hear the name of Hammock Street Church, or when people hear that you're part of Hammock Street Church, the first thing they're going to be thinking about is grace. Those people are so gracious. Those people are so filled with grace. And grace is appealing. Grace is one of the most appealing things in the world. So it follows that a church that's filled with grace is a church that's appealing to people in need of grace. And what kind of people are in need of grace? All kinds of people are in need of grace.
So if you invite someone to church, to Hammock Street Church this Christmas, and they don't want to come, it's because they're on some level worried that something other than grace will spill out among us. Because that's the experience they've had with church before. They're not going to stay away because of Jesus. They're not going to stay away because of Jesus' teachings or Jesus' love. They're going to stay away because they're going to anticipate no grace, as they've anticipated in the past. And they don't want to experience ever again. So what do we aspire to be as an ecclesia? We aspire, do we aspire to be known as a place that's filled with grace? We desire to be like Jesus, full to the brim of both grace and truth. We started with this verse. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. You see, the church is always most appealing when grace is most apparent. So what about you? Are you ready to identify and then remove your planks? Are you willing to remove those planks so you can see clearly in order to give grace to the people around you? Would you be willing to consider that perhaps you have a plank in your eye that needs to be removed that's keeping you from extending grace to someone in your life? Because grace from you could change their life and it could introduce them to the grace of God. Undeserved grace from you especially when they know that they don't deserve it, could change their life. Now, for some of you, that's how it worked in your life. It was when the grace that you received from someone you hurt opened you up to the truth of Jesus. And maybe it's even why you're here today. By now, your house is ready for Christmas, right? But are you ready for grace to come to town? Are you ready for grace to come into your home? Are you ready to show the grace of God to the people in your life? Are you ready for Christmas? Taking that plank out of your eye, acknowledging the thing that none of us want to acknowledge about ourselves is the best preparation for a Christmas characterized by grace. Now, if you still feel superior to sinners like you, you still have work to do. When there's a person that just gets on your last nerve, are you willing to see whether there's something in them that's reflecting back on you? As we get ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus, our Messiah, as we get ready to celebrate during this Christmas season that which God did on your behalf, let's be sure to take some time and reflect on ourselves and remove the planks from our eyes. Grace really is the unsettling solution for just about everything. Jesus was full of grace, and he extended it to people who were nothing like him. And then he asked people like us, who are nothing like him, to extend it to people who are nothing like us, and also to people who might not even like us. This Christmas season, let's do something unsettling. Let's do something... To someone, let's give someone something that they don't expect and that, that they don't necessarily deserve because when we do this, we'll be like our Father in heaven and we'll be part of the unsettling solution. And by doing that, like grace, we will be amazing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for showing us your grace. Thank you for showing us the love. Thank you for giving us what we don't deserve. And thank you for allowing us to see before we celebrate Christmas that grace is the greatest thing that we can give anyone. We love you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.